Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 10 through 13. And considering the church invisible. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, the church invisible. Give attention to God's holy word. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly I will sing praise to you. And again I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it is a great privilege to be called the brethren of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a great privilege to be adopted into your family and to be saved by our elder brother, the Lord Jesus. We pray now, O Lord, that according to your love to us as your children, you would pour out your spirit upon this time of preaching, that it may be indeed for us the primary means of grace whereby you speak to us good things, the things of salvation. And we ask all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Philosophers have often spent uh, a lot of energy and ink in trying to figure out what is the definition of beauty. What makes something beautiful? Is it the... Uh, interplay of colors? Is it the proportions that the artist uses? There's all different ways to approach the idea of beauty, but one of the common themes that you find in discussions of beauty is that unity or union of the parts is what makes something beautiful. Now, we understand this already. When we sing our hymns, we expect there to be a unity to the notes. We expect them to work together in unison. And when you're learning to play an instrument, if you're still practicing, perhaps you hit a discordant note. And we all hear it immediately because we know musically that note is not unified with the rest of the song. There is no harmony if there is no unity. Likewise, when it comes to architecture, if you go and observe some of the great pieces of architecture, what you notice is that all of the parts fit together. There is unity to the building. Nothing is out of proportion. Nothing is misplaced. But likewise, also, when we think about things that are ugly or not beautiful, it's often because there is a disunity. There is a disintegration of the parts of the thing we're looking at. There actually was a movement in the uh, early 20th century called autonal composition, where atheist philosophers had 
uh, de departed from God and his ways, and then the musicians started composing music that was purposely ununified. It was atonal. It, it was meant to be discordant. Some of the ugliest music you'll ever listen to. It's horrible music. But they did this self-consciously. Now, we ask ourselves a deeper question as Christians. Why is it that there are discordant things in our existence? Why is there disunity in much of our experience? Well, we know the answer that the Bible teaches us. That the reason things are disunified, the reason things fall apart over time, is because of sin. You see, when God first made man on the earth, he made him in perfect unity with himself, his mind, will, and affections, his body, and his soul, working together in perfect harmony, but he was also in union with God. He was unified with his maker. He followed the ways of the one who gave him life. But of course, Adam sinned. Adam broke the unity that he had with God. But God, in his mercy, desiring to save his people, instituted a second Adam. And that second Adam is in perfect unity, not only with his father who appointed and ordained him, but also with his people whom he came to save. Now you know that the reason we sin and the reason that we are subject to corruption and the disunity of our bodies, the disintegration of our uh, very persons is because we were united to Adam in his sins. We were in perfect union with Adam because he was appointed the federal head of humanity. And because he sinned, we all sinned in him. Therefore, if God is going to save a people, if he's going to exercise his power in saving a people, he has to choose another head, another captain of his people who are going to be saved. And that captain and those people who are united to that captain is what Reformed theologians call the invisible church. You see, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, the body of Christ. The, the church and those who are saved are such because they are united to Christ. They are in union with Him. And because they are in union with Him, they will be saved by Him. But... We need to step even further back into the idea of the church. Often when we talk about uniting with Christ, we, we tend to be emphasizing the need of sinners to repent and believe. The necessity that is laid upon those who are in their sins to depart from their sins and to join themselves with the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. But one of the great glories of the gospel and one of the great insights of reformed theology not that the reformed theology invented this but reformed theology rediscovered this one of the great glories of the gospel is that god the father 
from all eternity had elected and ordained a people to be saved by Christ who are united to Him by the doctrine of election. By the work of election, all of the elect are united to Christ. And so that when Christ comes to perform His work of salvation, His people are united to Him. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. We're going to see the perfect unity in the work of salvation between the Father and the Son and the Son and the church. In fact, what we're going to find is that having decided to save His church, God the Father ordained Christ as the head of that church, and Christ willingly unites himself to the church in his offices of priest, king, and prophet. God the Father, having decided to save his church, ordains Christ as the head of that church. And Christ willingly unites himself with that church as their priest, king, and prophet. There's two things in this passage we're going to look at. First, verse 10 Uh, Pardon me, verse 10 is the head of the church. Verses 11 through 13 is the church. Verse 10 is the church, and verses 11 through 13, I'm sorry, uh, verse 10 is the head of the church, and verse 11 through 13 is the church itself. Now, before we get into the details of this passage, we need to keep the context in mind. The context of this passage is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Remember what the author has exhorted us to do. He said, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For how shall we escape, in verse 3, if we neglect so great a salvation? And what the author is now doing in the rest of chapter 2 is expounding how great this salvation is. The last time we looked at the book of Hebrews, we noticed that in the author's quoting Psalm 8... He is telling us that the greatness of this salvation is that God is restoring humanity to its purpose. God is recreating mankind. Now in this section, we move to how he's going to do that. And the way that he's going to do that is by appointing a head of the church. Notice what he says in verse 10. He begins by speaking about the Father. It was fitting for him... For whom are all things, and by whom are all things. Now there's discussion about who this hymn refers to. It's evident that this is a reference to the Father because of the phrase that comes right after it. Notice that it says, Him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, is a reference to God the Father. Because God the Father is the source of creation, God the Father is the source of election. And the purpose of all things, the reason that all things exist, is to glorify God the Father. It is to exalt Him and His glory, power, and wisdom. We read an example of this in Revelation chapter 4, didn't we? Turn back to Revelation chapter 4. And notice the praise that is given to the Father.
Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. This is what the church in heaven sings to God the Father. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they, uh, they exist and were created. Notice how this is another way of saying what Hebrews 2 says. All things were by the Father. He created all things, and by His will they exist. And all things are for Him. He is worthy of receiving glory and honor and praise. We know that he, uh, Revelation 4 is about the Father because Revelation 5 speaks about the Lamb ascending the throne. Somebody's already on the throne, and then the Lamb ascends the throne. The Lamb is the Son, which means chapter 4 is about the Father. Returning now to Hebrews chapter 2, it's also evident that this is about the Father because he says in the next part of verse 10, it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. Notice that the church is described here as a vast multitude of sons. Now those who are saved, Christians, are sons in relation to who? In relation to the Father. So the church here is being described as sons. That must mean that the one that's being spoken of is God the Father, who has elected a body of mankind to be adopted as his sons. Paul is very explicit in Ephesians chapter 2, when he speaks about uh, chapter 1, when he speaks about the work of God the Father and what he has done for us. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Hebrews chapter 2 picks up this same idea when it speaks about the Father's work in our salvation. Notice he goes on that the, the Father is bringing many sons to glory. Now here is a great encouragement to our faith. When the author of Hebrews describes our salvation, he describes it as the work of the Almighty Father, who alone is worthy of glory and honor and praise, has chosen to bring sons to share in that glory. The, the end result of our salvation is that when God is finished working in His people, they will stand with Him in glory, praising Him, and casting their crowns at his feet. That's the picture of Revelation 4, isn't it? The church is surrounding the, the throne of the Father, praising and glorifying him, and casting their crowns at his feet. It, it's like a symphony of glory in heaven. God the Father gives you his glory, and then you give that glory back to him. And then he showers more glory upon you. That is your destiny, brothers and sisters. That's what God the Father has ordained for those who belong to Christ to bring you to glory. But, there's only one way that God the Father can do this. Notice the beginning of verse 10, it says, 
It was fitting. This word fitting refers to things that are proper, appropriate, apt, things that correspond to something else. It, it, it was fitting for God the Father to do what? That's what the end of verse 10 says. It was fitting for God the Father to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. What the, the phrase, it was fitting for God the Father, refers to is that because of his moral character, because of his perfect justice, there was only one way that man could be saved. This refers to a moral necessity that arises from the nature of God. Now, sometimes we, get, we can get lost in the weeds. In the, in the Middle Ages, some of the uh, scholastic theologians got lost in the weeds, and sometimes you'll hear people ask questions like this. If God is sovereign and almighty, can he make a rock too heavy for him to lift? And supposedly the answer to that question is if you say yes, then God is not mightier than the rock. But if you say no, somehow God is limited. God is being confined by the principles of physics or whatever the question may be about. But what we need to understand is that God's sovereignty and his liberty to do whatever he does is an expression of his nature. God is not free to act according to his nature. Later on in the book of Hebrews, the author will say it's impossible for God to lie. That's not because God is limited in some way. It's because God's very nature is truth itself. And so it is an impossibility for God to lie. The same idea is being brought up here. Because of God the Father's perfect righteousness, justice, and holiness. Because he wants to bring a sinful people to share in his own glory. There was only one way that could happen. And that's through making the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. This uh, word captain is a very important word in the book of Hebrews. It refers, it's used sometimes to refer to a prince, a pilot of a ship, but in the general sense it means the head of a body. That's actually what the word captain literally means in English. It comes from the Latin word for head. Caput is the Latin word for head, and so we call the heads of units captains. So this captain of our salvation, because he is the head of the body, had to be perfected through sufferings. Now, we also have to keep in mind here, this perfection of Christ does not imply that he was morally deficient, that he was not fully God and fully able to exercise the office that was given to him. What it means is that because he was made the head of the church and because this church was sunk in sin, somebody had to suffer. In order for Christ to function as the head of his church, somebody has to pay the penalty for sin. If Christ did not pay the penalty for sin, he could not be the head of the church. Because you see, the great necessity that we have 
The thing that sinners need more than anything else is atonement for their sins. The great uh, disunity in the creation today is that God's justice demands the punishment of sin. You remember when he gave Adam and Eve the covenant of works? He said, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And what God has done in his mercy is he has delayed that punishment. He has held that punishment back for generations and generations and executed it upon his son so that he can be a savior, so that he can bring people into salvation. Notice also, he had to be made perfect through sufferings. And so we see in verse 10, the head of the church. The, the head of the church that was appointed was appointed by the Father's decree to save a people. And the head of the church is appointed to do one specific thing, to bring many sons to glory. And the way in which he brings those sons to glory is through his sufferings. This is the purpose of the head of the church, and this is at the center of God's eternal decree. Notice the grammar of this verse. It may seem like I'm drawing election out of thin air for this verse, but notice. It was fitting for God the Father, for him, in bringing many sons to glory. Notice that the decision to bring sons to glory is grammatically prior to perfecting the captive of their salvation. The the implication here is that God the Father had already chosen to bring many sons to glory. The next step was to perfect the captain of their salvation. Well, this election of sons to glory is something that God the Father has done from all eternity. And he has appointed a captain to do such. A couple of applications from this verse alone. First, God the Father loves you, brothers and sisters. The the, the whole reason that sinners have any hope is because of God the Father's sovereign, free love for sinners. And in his love for sinners, he has appointed Christ to execute his will. When you think about the love of God for you, it is not only Christ that loves you. It is not only the Son. It is the Father also. And notice also that like a good father, he wants you to succeed. You know, every father at one level wants to see their children glorified. My father was not the best of fathers, to put it mildly, but I do remember one time in high school when I played football, as you like to be reminded that I played football. One day my father came down to watch me play, and he wanted to see me on the field, and he wanted to watch his son succeed and be glorified in that small context. Every father wants to see their sons glorified. How much more does God the Father, according to his decree, want to see you glorified forever in eternity? He does. He has ordained it, and he has provided all the means for it through the head of the church. But, this only comes through sufferings. 
the, the author of Hebrews is going to expand this idea later on. But if the head of the church had to suffer, we also must go through sufferings if we're going to end up in glory, if we're going to achieve what God has promised to us. Well, we've seen the head of the church appointed to perform the Father's will. Now he moves on to talk about the church itself. And, and he describes the church as the brethren of Christ. Notice what he says again in verse 11. He gives the reason why the captain of our salvation had to be perfected through sufferings because he says, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. They are all one body, the head and the members. Because all of the members are joined to the head, the head had to suffer so that he could sanctify. Now, there's a very important lesson here about what salvation is. Salvation is not only the forgiveness of sins. Salvation is being made worthy of entering God's glory. Salvation is being made able to enter into the presence of God, that throne room of heaven we saw in Revelation chapter 4. It is being made holy because the God whom we are united with is holy. Notice that he says, he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. Now, as I mentioned, entering glory only comes through suffering. And suffering, according to the gospel of Christ, for those who are being saved, has a sanctifying influence on us. Let me put it to you this way. This is where many mistake the gospel. The gospel does not promise you an easy life today. The gospel does not promise you peace and prosperity at any point in your life. But it does promise you that in the end, you will be glorified along with Christ. The other thing the gospel promises is that God will sanctify you from your sins. God, through the power of Christ, will make you fit for his eternal glory because he has chosen you in love and he is perfecting you through the work of Christ. This will involve sufferings. Christ gives a description of these sufferings in Matthew chapter 5. Look at Matthew chapter 5. Paul said in Ephesians 1 that God the Father has blessed us with spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, the, uh, Christ describes for us those who receive those blessings. This, of course, is the Beatitudes. But notice that the blessedness that Christ describes here comes upon those who suffer for righteousness' sake. Look at what he says. Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit means to be humbled, to be brought low, to be uh, low in our own sight. In fact, maybe even despising ourselves in our own sight because of our sins. And any of you who have been humbled by the Spirit know what kind of suffering this is. It's not fun to be humbled. 
It's not fun to be poor. It's not fun to be filled with cares and worries and strife and guilt over sin. That is a form of suffering. But it goes on. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Many of you in this room, I know, have mourned over the loss of loved ones, have mourned over the loss of relationships. But what Christ is speaking about directly here is mourning over our own sin, is is mourning over the fact that I am the guilty one. It was my fault. This is a form of suffering. Christ goes on, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. If you've ever been around little, little children, you know that being hungry and thirsty can be a form of suffering as well. Christ here is speaking about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. He goes on and talks about the, the growth in this sanctification. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall, be, they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice that throughout the Beatitudes, the blessings come upon those who are being sanctified through these sufferings. Brothers and sisters, I want to be sober with you, but also to encourage you. The reason God reveals His divine election, His eternal decree to us, The reason we are given the doctrine of election is to help us persevere. It's to help us see the end when we're in the midst of the sufferings. You know, I uh, recently built a garden in my backyard. And what I had to do was prepare the ground so I could build the blocks for the raised garden bed. Now, if if you had showed up uh, around 5.30 in the evening, you would have seen me laying on my grass shuffling dirt around, looking like a crazy person. And if you just showed up and said, wow, pastor must have lost it, and then you left, you, you, you would have not known what was going on because you didn't know the goal I was trying to achieve. It, it looked like the work of a crazy man, but hopefully when you see my garden, you'll think he's not maybe that crazy. The, the point being is that there was a goal I was trying to accomplish in order to understand being down in the dirt and the muck, you have to see where this is going. That's why God reveals this to us. Suffering is part of the Christian life. But your destiny is the glory of God in all eternity. Paul uses the doctrine this way in Romans 8, doesn't he? Turn to Romans 8. One of the most beloved chapters in the whole Scripture, rightly so. Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Well, there it is. Paul takes the destiny of glory and uses it as a counterbalance to the sufferings of this life. Let me, let me encourage you a little bit with this, this idea of suffering. Because I think sometimes we, we mistake what the sufferings are that Christians go through. When we speak about suffering as a Christian, we often think of being persecuted. We, we often think of being slandered, being hated. 
being uh, perhaps lined up against the wall when the Muslim terrorists finally show up. We, we think of being persecuted for the sake of Christ. But often, especially in Romans 8, Romans 7 and 8, the suffering that Paul is talking about is the suffering of repentance from sin, the pain that comes from sanctification. You know what sanctification is. We as sinners, though forgiven in Christ, are covered with cancer of every single kind throughout our whole souls. And the only way to get rid of that cancer is for God to perform surgery. And surgery involves being cut open and having things taken out. That is suffering. And that's the suffering that's being talked about. But we have a captain who's gone before us and who is not ashamed of us. Look at what the author says in verse 11. This captain who was appointed to bring us to glory through his sufferings, because we are united by the decree of the Father, and because the Lord Jesus Christ has willingly taken upon himself our salvation, he is not ashamed to call us brethren. Think about that for a second. Think about your sins. Think about how narrow-minded you can be. Think about how cold-hearted you can be sometimes. Think about how unholy you are sometimes. But because the Father has set His love upon you as one of His people, Christ is not ashamed. Christ is not ashamed to call you His brethren. But notice, the way this is comforting to us, the reason Christ is not ashamed is because of what the Father has done. The Gospel of John, Christ says repeatedly, I always do the things that please the Father. I and my Father are one. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. Everything that God the Son does as our mediator is in obedience and in response to what God the Father has done. Well, here's an anchor for the soul. Christ is not ashamed of you because God the Father has loved you. Christ does not become ashamed of you when you fail, when you sin. Now, if you fail to repent, you may prove yourself never to have been one of his. But those who are truly his feel sorry for their sin and repent and follow him. But notice, Christ is not ashamed to call us brethren. And even more so, he willingly takes on this office as the captain of our salvation and then he unites himself to us in his three offices. I'll try to be more succinct here, but there's incredible glory in the three verses that are cited about Christ and his union with us. I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that Christ unites with us as our priest, king, and prophet. And if you know the Westminster Confession, you'll know that's not the right order, at least not according to the confession. The, the proper order in the confession is prophet, priest, and king. In the confession, they list these offices in a theological order, in, in the order of uh, perhaps biblical theology. Christ first comes on the scene as the prophet, preaching the gospel, revealing the will of God. Then he goes to the cross as our priest, and then he's ascended and seated as our king in glory. But remember, the author of Hebrews is not writing to reform Presbyterians. He's writing to Hebrews 
that know their Old Testament. The order of offices that's listed here is the Old Testament order of their revelation. What was the first office that God instituted in the nation of Israel? It was the priests of Aaron. The priests came first. And then after the priesthood, you have the Davidic kingdom. And after the Davidic kingdom, you have the office of the prophets, concluding with Malachi. So in the Hebrew mindset, priest, king, and prophet is the order that these offices show up in. And that's the order the author uses here. He first cites Psalm 22. And he cites Psalm 22, 22. He says, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praises to you. This is where the language of brethren comes from that the author of Hebrews is using for his argument. But notice what Christ is doing in this verse. He's leading worship. He's leading the singing in the midst of the assembly. In the Old Testament, this was a priestly function. The priest not only offered sacrifices, but he would then come out and conduct the reading of Scripture in the temple, and the priests would lead the singing of the choirs. The book of Chronicles, you find that David appoints different priests to lead the music of the temple. Well, that's what Christ is doing here. Keep in mind also, Psalm 22 is the psalm that Christ had on his lips when he was dying on the cross. Psalm 22.1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Later on in Psalm 22, it speaks about his, uh, the mockery that he suffered under the Jews. He trusted in God, let God save him. The very things the Jews were saying to him while he was on the cross. Also in Psalm 22, there's a reference to his clothes being distributed by lot among the people that are watching him. Exactly what happens on the cross. Psalm 22 is the priestly psalm. After the sacrifice of Christ, he now leads the church in worship. This is the first office the author lists here. And this is one of the first ways that you have to be united to Christ. And, and one of the ways that we do this is by recognizing, brothers and sisters, that by faith and the power of the Spirit, Christ is in our midst leading our worship. Christ, as the head of the church, is not absent from the church, but he is in the midst of the church, proclaiming the name of the Father to his brethren, leading the singing of the church as the church gathers together as the great assembly. This is the spiritual reality of what's happening here. This is what is going on right now, because Christ and his church are unified. Christ and his church are together. We often forget this fact, don't we? We, we often think about the church gathering as, well, it's all these people, and we've gathered together, and the pastor will harangue us for an hour, and then we'll go have some food and rest for the rest of the Lord's Day. But at the heart of what is happening in the church of the Lord Jesus is that he, as the priest, is leading the worship. That's how you should approach it. That's how you should see it. And that's why you need to be in it. That's why you need to be in the worship, because this is how Christ unites himself with you. Not only does he unite himself with you as a priest, he unites himself with you as a king. That's what the next passage cited refers to. He says, I will put my trust 
in him. Interesting statement. This comes from Psalm 18. Turn with me to Psalm 18. Psalm 18 is also essentially the same passage as 2 Samuel 22. Your footnotes may say 2 Samuel 22. If you go compare these two chapters, you'll find they're, they're the same thing. And 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18 is a psalm of David, the king. And look at what the title of Psalm 18 says. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song... Listen, on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, now it goes into the psalm. The the context of this psalm, it comes at the end of David's life. And and this psalm is is a song of praise that David lifts up when he has achieved final victory. You see, kings are appointed to win. The purpose of a king is victory. Kings who are victorious rule and reign. Kings who are not victorious lose their kingdoms. So the purpose of a king is to be victorious over his enemies. David, at the end of his life, is finally victorious, and the victory he achieved is expressed in verse 1 and 2. I will love you, O Lord, my strength, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust. What David is saying in Psalm 18 is that at the end of his life, all of his victories were achieved, not by his strength and not by his wisdom, but by his trust in Jehovah. That's how he achieved his victory. This also, then, is the way that Christ achieves his victory as our king. Notice that the author of Hebrews cites this verse as something Christ is saying. David's greater son also put his trust in God, and it's in this way that he unites with us as our king. Think about this, brothers and sisters. I really want you to pause and ponder this, because this is red meat for your souls. Christ, as the captain of our salvation achieved everything that he achieved, not by his divine power, not by his expression as the Son of God. He achieved everything, casting out demons, suffering and dying on the cross, resurrecting from the dead and ascending to glory by trusting in his Father. He exercised faith in the promises God had made him, and that is how he overcame Philippians chapter 2, Paul speaks about this. He who was in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a servant. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself even to the point of death. That is how Christ lived as our captain suffering. And he lived by faith. You and I also are called to live by faith. John will say in his first letter, the victory that we have is our faith. 
Our faith is our victory over the world. Christ has already walked that path before you. Christ, as your king, walks that path and has already achieved. And he calls you to walk the same path. You know, I'll, I'll just illustrate it this way. Kings are above their people. But people love kings that are similar to them. You know, one of the great kings of England was Alfred the Great. And Alfred the Great was a pious man. He was a learned man. He was a courageous man. He prevented the Vikings from conquering the whole island. But at one point, he was losing the battle. And he had to flee into exile. And one of the great stories of Alfred the Great is that as he was in hiding, in disguise, he found shelter at the hut of this old widow woman. And this old widow woman didn't know who this king was, didn't know this was Alfred the Great. And this widow woman uh, is preparing some food, and she tells Alfred, watch the pie and don't let it burn. And Alfred, of course, is lost in his thoughts, thinking about the kingdom and worrying and pondering, what am I going to do to defeat the Vikings? And then the pie burns. And this old widow woman comes back and starts upbraiding him and rebuking him and chasing him out of her kitchen. And he humbly says, you're right, I was wrong, I messed up. That makes you love him. He's just like his people. He can get rebuked by grandma for messing up in the kitchen, just as grandchildren do when they mess up, or as you may have done when you messed up. Likewise, Christ, notice how he's being presented to you as your king. He is just like you. He exercised faith in his father. That is how he achieved his victory. You also believe in your father's promises. You also fix your faith upon his word, just as Christ did. And then finally, as our prophet. And again, here I am, here am I and the children whom God has given me. This comes from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17. Isaiah eight seventeen. Isaiah writes... Starting in verse 11. For the Lord God spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hollow, let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary, but as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both houses of Israel, as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Pardon me, verse 18. <laughs> Here I am and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. Now notice carefully what Isaiah is doing. He's describing his office as prophet in the midst of a corrupt generation who is being judged. And as Isaiah is appointed to the office of prophet, 
He and his family are appointed as signs and wonders to the house of Israel. They are appointed as witnesses to the glory of God for the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. Christ is the prophet. Christ fulfills what Isaiah symbolized. What does that mean for you and I? We are the children that God has given to Christ. We are those who are united to Christ in his office of bearing witness to the truth of God. And we are appointed for signs and wonders in Israel. We are appointed to be testimonies to the grace of God for sinners in Christ. And so Christ is united to his church as priest, king, and prophet. Well, what does this mean for us? Why are these things being revealed to us? Why are we told that Christ is not ashamed to call his people his brethren? Because what the author of Hebrews wants to do is to persuade you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what he says in chapter 13, verse 10. Uh, Verse 12. Notice how he uses the same language of chapter 2. Therefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered outside of the gate. Likewise, or therefore, since Jesus was appointed by God the Father, since Jesus was appointed to suffer on your behalf, since Jesus is united to his people as priest, king, and prophet, since Jesus has accomplished everything, Therefore, let us go forth to him, outside of the camp, bearing his reproach. If he is not ashamed of you, you do not be ashamed of him. But believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and in believing, he will bring you to the glory of the Father, forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and his suffering on our behalf. We thank you that you've appointed him the captain of our salvation. And we thank you that he unites with us. And that he is unashamed to call us his brethren. We pray, O Lord, that you would forgive us for the ways we have been ashamed of him. And have resisted the work of sanctification in our hearts. We pray that you would work in us faith in the Son of God, even as he walked by faith. And that in walking with him, you might bring us to eternal glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.